70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Bonjour, je m'appelle Aram Kim. Je travaille en tant qu'interprète traductrice et vis actuellement entre Paris et Séoul. Hi, my name is Aram Kim, and I'm an interpreter working in Seoul and Paris. My ties with KBS World Radio date back to 2005. Back then, I was living in France and always felt homesick and thirsty for content from Korea. That is why I started to tune in to KBS World Radio, to catch up with the news from home and learn about various areas of the society I wasn't familiar with. It also helped me see Korea from a more objective perspective and better understand the cultural differences between Korea and France. Aussi, c'était très intéressant de découvrir les différentes façons de penser entre les Français et les Coréens sur certains sujets. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It is the 3rd of February and welcome to our Friday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The former Justice Minister Cho Guk has been sentenced to two years in prison on charges related to academic irregularities involving his children and intervening in a state inspection. We'll have more in our news briefing shortly. Earlier this week, the WHO declared that COVID-19 remains a global health emergency but added that the pandemic is at a turning point We'll further assess the situation with an expert for our in-depth today. And we also have a movie spotlight coming up, reviewing two international releases this week, Babylon and After Sun. We have all that and more on today's Career 24. Cho Guk, the controversial justice minister under the former Moon Jae-in administration, has been sentenced to two years in prison on charges related to his involvement in academic irregularities with his children and intervening in a state inspection. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee-jin, joins us in the studio now to tell us more on this, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So, Cho Guk was a figure who became a lightning rod of criticism for the former Moon Jae-in administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, these allegations they, that surfaced at the time led to a reputation of hypocrisy for the Democratic Party, which was said to be a factor that led to the party's fall in approval ratings and ultimately even the loss of the presidential election last year as well. Mm -hmm. It was certainly said to be a factor anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can you tell us? about Cho's sentencing today. Well, the Seoul Central District Court handed down the verdict on a Friday, some three years after Cho was indicted, without detention on charges of obstructing of work, violating the anti-graft law and interfering with the execution of a right by abuse of power. The court, however, chose not to detain Cho on site, citing a lack of flight risk or likelihood of destroying evidence. The ruling comes after a separate ruling earlier in the day for his wife, Chong Yongshim, a former Dongyang University professor, uh, to one year in prison for uh, admission of irregularities involving her son. Cho was found guilty on most of the charges related to academic irregularities involving his children, including forging documents to help his children get into prestigious schools. He had also been charged with receiving bribes in the form of his daughter's scholarship. The court judged that this does not constitute bribery, but still amounts to a violation of the anti-graft law. The court also found him guilty of abusing his power as a then senior uh, presidential civil secretary to end an in- investigation into bribery allegations surrounding former Busan vice mayor Yu Jesu. The former minister told reporters after the ruling that he intends to file for an appeal. Yes, well, the first ruling has been made for now, and we will wait to see how the case progresses in the appellate courts later then. 
In other news, the government and the ruling People Power Party are seeking to raise the age of eligibility for free subway rides offered to seniors amid a rapidly ageing society and to help stem losses incurred by municipal governments. So, Hee Jin, what has been proposed? Well, PPP floor leader Chu Ho Young told reporters on Friday that his party and the government will discuss how the central and local governments can help share the deficit burden while reviewing a revamp of the threshold of 65 years of age set decades ago. Seoul Mayor Wusehun recently urged the finance ministry to address the snowballing annual deficit of 1 trillion won or about 813 million US dollars in order to reduce public burden. This comes after the ministry, in a push to tighten fiscal spending, opposed a bipartisan budget that passed through a standing committee last year, seeking to help uh, make up for the losses due to local government's subway uh, public service obligation. Mayor Orr said he is open to all possibilities, adding that now is the time to start local discourse, uh, social discourse on updating the rate system uh, for public transportation. His remarks echo that of Tegu Mayor Hong Junpyo from the previous day when he said the uh, city is considering raising the age of seniors' eligibility uh, to 70 years or older. Orr noted that the elderly population will soon account for one-third of the nation's entire higher population and that the future generation should not be burdened with losses from these free rides. Sticking with subway-related news, a group advocating for the rights of people with disabilities said it will call off rush-hour subway protests until February 13th. Can you tell us more? Well, Park Kyung-sok, the uh, head of the Solidarity Against Disability Discrimination, said on Friday they have agreed to a request by lawmaker group led by main opposition Democratic Party representative Kim Min-sok and a civic group. The lawmakers and civic group uh, have pledged to actively engage in a social discussion and seek a resolution regarding mobility issues facing those with disabilities. The latest development comes after a string of sporadic protests by the group that brought subways to a standstill with its members in wheelchairs jamming open train doors with ladders. Park then called on the general public to help throw light on the matter by pressing the finance ministry and the Seoul city government for a resolution. Let's shift gears now to diplomatic news. Foreign Minister Pak Jin and US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reaffirmed that the Allies' most utmost priority is the complete denuclearization of North Korea. Pak, who is currently visiting Washington, also met with US lawmakers and former ambassadors on Thursday to seek support for efforts to strengthen the US-South Korea alliance. So what more can you tell us? Well, Seoul's foreign ministry said Park and Sullivan reiterated the shared objective during a discussion on Thursday in Washington as they agreed to a resolute response to North Korea's provocations while seeking to cut off Pyongyang's access to illicit funds through hacking. The Allies agreed to call on the international community to fulfil UN Security Council resolutions and to entreat them to inform countries around the world about human rights violations inside the regime. Park also held separate meetings with key figures of the US Congress, including House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall and committee member uh, Korean-American Congresswoman Young Kim and sought their support to shore up the South Korea-US alliance, which marks its 70th anniversary this year. The US Congress on Thursday passed a resolution denouncing Kim Jong-un, among other socialist leaders, slamming the ideology and its most prominent proponents. The resolution, which noted the horrors of socialism, uh, was passed in a vote of 328 to 86, with a majority of Democrats at 109 voting with all Republicans for the resolution. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, the Air Force of South Korea and the US held joint air drills yet again on Friday, with the US deploying F-22 and F-35B jets to fly alongside F-35A warplanes from South Korea. And speaking of the 70th anniversary of the alliance, Seoul and Washington are apparently discussing a possible state visit to the US by President Yoon Sung-yeol 
in the first half of the year to mark the milestone, the first such official trip in 12 years. While South Korean presidents have visited the U.S. in recent years, it has been that long since a state visit, Eden. Indeed. According to a diplomatic source and several others, on Friday, the two sides are holding such discussions while also leaving open the possibility of making the president's visit an official or working visit. A state visit to the U.S. by Yun would be the first by a South Korean president since Lee Myung-bak in 2011, with speculations over whether Yun will address the U.S. Congress as Lee did uh, 12 years ago. Observers pegged April as a likely time for visit. A senior official at the presidential office told Seoul-based Yonhap News, uh, Yonhap News Agency, that discussions on Yun's uh, visit to the U.S. are underway, adding that nothing has been decided yet. And finally, the nation's Forest Service has raised its forest fire risk advisory by a notch to caution from of interest ahead of the first full moon festivities for the Lunar New Year and the first since the end of pandemic restrictions. Can you tell us more? Well, the agency said on Friday it will maintain the advisory until 8pm Monday amid a heightened risk of forest fires due to events marking the first full moon of the Lunar New Year, which falls on Sunday. The yearly event includes a ritual to light haystacks on fire or burning the taichip. Uh, in the past decade, an average of seven fires occurred during this time of the year, burning down 44 hectares of forests. Uh, this year, 635 events are scheduled nationwide following an end to gathering restrictions. The government will operate fire pre- preventative headquarters at some 300 agencies and deploy around 22,000 personnel at event locations. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. The World Health Organization announced on Monday that they will maintain the status of COVID-19 as a public health emergency of international concern, the highest level of alert for the global body. However, it added that the pandemic, now in its fourth year, is probably at a transition point. Meanwhile, South Korea reached a key milestone related to the pandemic on Monday as well, when it lifted the indoor mask mandate for all locations except high-risk facilities. To assess the pandemic situation, we have returning to the show Neil Mabbott, an immunology professor at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. He joins us on the line now. Professor Mabbott, hello and welcome back to the show. Hello and, and thank you for inviting me back to speak to you. Professor Mabbott, we want to start today by first asking you about the situation in the UK so that we get uh, a sense, a broader sense of the pandemic situation around the world. Can you bring us up to speed on the situation in the UK? Are there any restrictions in place there? Yes, of course. So we're now in the the winter period in in the UK. In the beginning of the winter, we started to see, as anticipated, an increase in in COVID-19 cases, which, of course, coincided with flu cases as well. But the most recent data uh, from from last week show that COVID infections are actually starting to decline and the estimated prevalence in private households testing positive for COVID is probably about one in 60. Uh, So that's still high in a population. We've got over 65 million people in the UK. But fortunately, as in Korea, a high percentage of people have been vaccinated or have I guess, hybrid immunity from a combination of vaccines or or previous infection. So as a consequence of that, the number of deaths is much, much lower than it was during the early stages of the pandemic, and deaths are similarly decreasing alongside hospitalizations, etc. Regarding restrictions, there are no uh, COVID restrictions now in the UK for the the general population, I I should say. There are no mass mandates, there are no social distancing etc requirements likewise no requirement to stay home if you test positive it's all guidance now that people are recommended to stay home etc that said if you go to hospitals etc you are expected to wear a a mask we do have there is one addition to that which uh, in line with other countries actually around the world which coincided with the lifting of the zero covid uh, uh, idea in in china there was concern that this might import uh, 
variants of concern, etc., into the UK. So anybody travelling from mainland China into the UK must now have a, a negative COVID test before they, they, they board. Hmm. And, and likewise, we are also testing roughly about 20% of arrivals or, or randomly sampling 20% of arrivals from China uh, to, to sequence uh, essentially those viruses to, to, to see what, uh, if, there, if there are any variants of concern uh, among, amongst the people arriving here. I see. Well, Overall, encouraging signs in the UK then, with the number of cases seeming to uh, decline. Here in Korea as well, the latest wave is continuing to subside and the government lifted most mandatory indoor mask-wearing rules after more than two years on Monday. It only now remains for high-risk facilities such as hospitals and on public transportation. Uh, But there is a lingering concern that the lifting of the mask mandate will lead to a spike in infections. Uh, did that happen in the UK at all when mask rules were lifted? Uh, do you think it could happen here? It's, it's, it's difficult to, to make direct comparisons now at this stage of the pandemic when we have, at least in the UK, when we have such high vaccine coverage or immunity in the population uh, through through past infection. Uh, but as anticipated, that did coincide with uh, an increase in infections. But as I point, as I as I was uh, clear, clear to mention, uh, we did that didn't translate into this uh, a, a substantial increase in, in deaths, etc. Mm. That said, there are still many in the population that continue to to wear masks in in, in situations where they're either on public transport or in enclosed confined spaces or make sure that they're, they've opened a window, etc. So although the requirements where a mask has now been removed, there's still a significant amount of the population who continues to do so. Yes, and that is uh, essentially the same situation here as well. A lot of people in Korea are continuing to wear masks. For example, even here at KBS, uh, most people in the building are continuing to wear masks. So it seems that uh, people are remaining cautious in Korea for now. Let's uh, turn to the World Health Organization's announcement on Monday. Uh, Their decision to maintain the status of COVID-19 as a public health emergency of international concern. That means COVID-19 status as a global health emergency will surpass three years now after it was first declared in January 2020. However, the Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus said that he was hopeful that the world will transition out of the emergency phase this year. Uh, that we are at a so-called transition point. So, Professor Mavic, can you first walk us through uh, why the WHO made their decision this way? OK, yes. Uh, to, to a large extent, I, I agree with this uh, decision. So the World Health Organization at their recent meeting concluded that the COVID-19 outbreak will probably stop being a global emergency soon, but not just yet. Mm. It's, it's very likely that we're we're very close to that kind of transition point between the two. And, and there are clear signs that, uh, that, that we're, re- we're reaching this point because we have now we're starting to generate high levels of immunity to the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And as in the UK and in other countries, this is really starting to limit the impact now that the virus is having on those populations when we think back to the early stages of, of the pandemic. But of course, there has to be some caution because of course, some regions will be more advanced than others. The UK, Korea, etc., may, may already be at, uh, at that uh, transition point. But vaccine coverage, unfortunately, is not uniform. I mean, there's 25% of the world that hasn't been vaccinated yet. And in, in some regions, that's, that's also uh, uh, regions where there's very limited uh, coverage. Mm. So keeping the emergency states at this time makes sense because by doing so, it compels nations to take appropriate measures so that we can all reach that point where we can then no longer clued, uh, conclude it as an emergency. So this requires countries that, uh, uh, or member, member nations, I should say, to continue to report cases, to share surveillance data, et cetera, et cetera. But a public health emergency of international concern is, is one if we, if we take the specific uh, definition of it, it's one that risks spread, spreading infectious disease internationally. Mm. And now you could argue that we've we've already reached that period. The virus has spread to, to most countries around the world. But 
the disease, but if, so if we take the adoption and say it's no longer an international emergency of concern, then that risks bringing in complacency and people think, oh, COVID is over now, we don't need to worry about it anymore. But of course, this is still a serious disease. And yeah, at, at present, there are currently millions of infections and sadly, still thousands of deaths a day across across the world. Mm. So I, I, would, I would be cautious at this point by declaring the, the emergency completely over because, again, that, that brings in this kind of uh, complacency. But right. it's interesting to note that the agency does meet roughly about every three months to discuss the, the status level. And it's probably likely that the, the WHO is starting to prepare uh, member nations for the, this transition period when we do start to move to the next phase. So maybe in three months' time, they may have, they may have reached a, a, a different decision along that journey. Right, so you overall agree with EWHO's assessment and perhaps uh, you're saying that we can expect them to change their decision on the status of COVID-19 as a global health emergency in three months' time when uh, the WHO hold another meeting. Uh, What factors remain in the way for the WHO to make that change, do you think? What changes do you think we need to see before the WHO can do that? Yes. So as I've, as I've been mentioning, vaccines have been uh, the, the key throughout the uh, COVID pandemic. And what the WHO want to be seeing in, in their data is a point when we've reached higher levels of immunity in populations globally, either through vaccination or a combination of vaccination and, and, and natural infection. And as I've been mentioning, this will help to limit the serious impact that COVID-19 has on health society and health services. That's what all these measures that we've been discussing in this interview are about, is limiting the impact, that the, the serious impact that COVID-19 has had on individuals' health, society, and obviously the impact that it has on, on, on those health services. And as I pointed out, at this stage, there's approximately 25% of the world's population are unvaccinated. Uh, so this, this needs to be... Uh, 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 brought up so that we're, we're all at this, uh, the same uh, level of uh, immunity. Mm. So for countries to help, I guess, the situation along the way, uh, you're saying vaccinations is probably the number one thing that they need to continue to push for. Uh, is that all? What, other, what more can countries do to uh, help reduce the risk of COVID-19? What more do countries need to yes, look out no, for so, as well? So vac- vaccination is, is the obvious one. Likewise, we need to be we need to continue surveillance and reporting as well. We, we, we need to be uh, another key concern which could, could uh, uh, prevent this. Uh, likewise, we're, we're concerned in the UK as well is, is the uh, presence or the, or the uh, generation of a new virus variant concern, one that may be much more infectious, cause more uh, severe disease, or evade all, all that immunity that we've built up by the vaccine. So. Again, it's important we don't lose that complacency as we reach this kind of transition point. We continue that surveillance and reporting and at the same time sharing data between nations as well so that we're aware of what's going on in different parts of parts of the world so we can keep on top of uh, the, the pandemic as, as it currently is. And obviously in, in the UK and in other nations, we've started to roll out uh, new vaccines, so-called bivalent vaccines, which have been... Uh, which designed to react also against the Omicron variant. And so by doing that, we'll be able to repurpose those vaccines and, and modify them should different uh, variants, etc., be in the population and to provide additional protection. At the same time, we need to con- continue the communication of the risks to the population as well. It's, it's, it's very easy to consider... COVID-19 is over now, and so we don't need to worry about it. But we need to continue to communicate clearly to our populations that COVID hasn't disappeared and that we need to still take, get our vaccines. Uh, uh, if we are in uh, crowded places, perhaps wear a mask, stay at home if we're feeling unwell, etc., etc. And at the same time, we need to ensure we maintain preparedness. In, in many countries, the, the, the important measures that we put in place and those systems are no longer being used. And in some cases, they, they've been uh, dismantled now. Uh, it's important that we, we don't essentially take our eye off the ball. We, we maintain that preparedness such that should things start to change for the worse, we can immediately respond. 
Right, so we have come a long way, but we need to keep reminding people that uh, COVID-19 still poses a danger, especially uh, variants uh, could come along as well. But uh, we certainly hope to keep our fingers crossed that uh, that doesn't happen and that the world can certainly uh, get some good news uh, this year on this front soon. Professor, we'll have to wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Professor Neil Mabbott from the University of Edinburgh. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Goodbye. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 11.52 points, or 0.47% on Friday, to close the week at 2,480.40. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 2.17 points, or 0.28%, to close at 766.79. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 9.11 against the dollar, closing the day at 1,229.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segments where we round up some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And today we have the return of our contributor for this segment, Walter Lee, back after his break. Walter, hello. It's good to have you back. It's great to be back, Chang. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Okay, we have to dive straight in and head straight into our stories as well today. Walter, what do you have for us first? Yeah, so starting off pretty bad. So prosecutors have requested a court order for serial rapist Kim Gunjik to undergo chemical castration. Now, the Suwon District Court said Friday that it had received the request during the second hearing of Kim, who faces charges of violating the 2006 Act on the Punishment of Sexual Violence Crimes and Protection of Victims. Now, the court said that in making its request, the prosecution submitted Kim's psychiatric evaluation results, which concluded that he needs to get treatment to suppress sexual urges. Right. Kim is a notorious figure who was found guilty in a number of sexual assault and rape cases with underage girls. He was set to be released from prison last year, but now he's facing calls to be chemically castrated. Uh, How first does this treatment work exactly okay, what are we so, talking about yeah so the medical uh, the, the medicine sorry used in the chemical castration helps to block the activity of hormones that stimulate the sex gland in order to suppress the secretion of testosterone now the reason for this method is to prevent sex crimes from occurring so it is not a physical castration or, uh, but a similar effect is achieved through the use of the chemicals now the court can order the accused to undergo the treatment for up to a maximum of 15 years after a psychiatric evaluation is submitted. Yes, so it is considered a very extreme measure, of course. Uh, As I mentioned, the last time we reported about Kim was when he was set to be released from prison, right? Yeah, that's right. So he was set to be released from prison last October after serving 15 years for the sexual assault of 11 minors between May and September of 2006. But Kim was kept behind bars after he was found to be the one behind an unresolved sexual assault case that occurred in September 2006. So in his first hearing held last December, prosecutors said that Kim needed to undertake a psychological uh, evaluation as he committed sex crimes more than twice and all involving women under the age of 19. Uh, His third hearing is set to be held on March 3rd. Yes, there have been many people who had protested uh, his initially scheduled release as they claim that his sentence of 15 years was too short, especially in today's standards, Mm. and that he remained a threat It seems the prosecutors have perhaps responded to such calls, but uh, we will see what the courts decide. Mm. Okay, let's move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? So South Korea ranked 24th out of 167 countries in an assessment of democracy in 2022. Now, this is actually down eight spots from a year earlier. Now, according to a survey published Thursday by the Economist Analytic Agency, the Economist Intelligence Unit, or EIU, South Korea scored a weighted average of 8.03 out of 10 points on their Democracy Index 2022. Now, with its score in the eight-point range, the country remained in the full democracy category after advancing from the flawed democracy category for the first time in five years in 2020. 
So from 16th to 24th in a year is quite a tumble. Mm. Uh, before we look at why Korea fell so far, can you tell us a little bit more about this index? Right. So since 2006, the EIU has annually assessed 167 countries in five areas. The electoral process and pluralism, civil liberties, the functioning of government, political participation, and also political culture to evaluate their democratic development. Now, based on its scores on a range of indicators with these categories, each country is then classified as one of four types of regime, fully democracy, flawed democracy, hybrid regime, and authoritarian regime. Okay, so Korea still remains in that top category, but what factors led to the drop in South Korea's ranking in 2022. Okay, so though South Korea saw its performance in civil liberties climb 0.59 points, the sharp drop of 1.25 points in the political culture category brought down the country's overall score. The EIU survey said politicians in South Korea focused their political energies on taking down rival politicians rather than working to find consensus and improve the lives of citizens. It added that this pattern of confrontational politics has been detrimental to the country's political culture score in the Democracy Index as the public has increasingly grown uh, disenchanted with democratic politics and lost faith in the public officials. Yes, and last year, of course, Korea also had the presidential election, which saw the two main political parties clashing heavily. Hmm. And many would argue that the country has remained especially divided since then. It's a disappointing assessment, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, which country ranked first in the index? Well, Norway stayed atop of the list, uh, followed by New Zealand, Iceland, Sweden, and then Finland. Now, at the other end of the index, North Korea scored a weighted average of 1.08, maintaining last year's score to remain in the 165th spot. And after crisis hit Myanmar and Afghanistan, scored even lower. So 165th out of 167 for North Korea. Okay, let's move on to our final story for today. What else do you have for us? Yeah, so ending with some lighter news, we have some exciting news coming from the sports world as the South Korean table tennis prodigy Shin Yubin will compete in a domestic tournament for the first time in roughly a year and a half this weekend. So according to Shin's agency, Management GNS, on Friday, the 18-year-old will compete for Korean Air in a match against POSCO International at the 2023 Dunamu Korean Professional Table Tennis League, or KTTL, more specifically, the Women's Korea League. Now, the match is set to be held on Sunday in Suwon, Gyeonggi Province. Shin suffered injuries to her wrist while competing in a major domestic tournament in September 2021 and some international events. After undergoing surgery for a stress fracture, she took part in extensive rehabilitation efforts, which led to a hiatus. Yes, the young star won the nation's heart at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021, becoming the youngest Korean table tennis player to compete at the Olympics. And she put on very impressive and gutsy performances, uh, quickly making her a star. Uh, Now, though she'll be competing uh, back in the domestic arena after more than a year, she was active on the international stage, right? Uh, Yeah, that's correct. So after recovery, Shin emerged as a strong player by grabbing two gold medals at the World Table Tennis Contender WTT competition in Nova Gorica in Slovenia late last year. The feat uh, raised her world ranking to 19th place. Most recently, she competed in the Asian qualifiers and earned tickets to take part in the women's doubles matches, mixed doubles and singles events at the 2023 ITTF World Table Tennis Championships Finals, set to be held in Durban, South Africa in May. I believe that she has spoken about coming back to the domestic stage after all these months. Yeah, she said, though, she is nervous. She can't wait to meet her fans who have continuously cheered her on. She then vowed to do her best to achieve a good performance for all her fans. Yes, I'm sure she's going to get a great reception. That's all for Career Training Today. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. It's time now for Movie Spotlight, our Friday feature where we discuss Korean cinema and review some of the latest cinematic releases at the Korean box office and online. Making up our critical panel this week, first we have Darcy Paquette to my left. Darcy, hello, it's good to see you. Hi, good to be here. 
And Jason is taking a break this week, so we have the equally brilliant, if not more brilliant, Mark Raymond with us as well. Mark, hello. It's good to see you too. Yes, hello. Okay, we've had a few weeks where it was all Korean films, but today we have two international releases to talk about. The first is a major Hollywood release. It's called Babylon. It has the same title in Korean. It's directed by Damien Chazelle of uh, La La Land fame. And when I say it is a major release, I say that because of not only the star names involved, (laughs) but also the epic runtime of three hours and ten minutes. Uh, It's set in Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s. Darcy, can you set this one up for us? Yes, it's... It's very different from La La Land. Uh, You can find perhaps a few continuities there. But, uh, I mean, he seems to have been trying to create kind of a big scandalous extravaganza that would kind of, you know, shock and provoke its audience on the one hand, and then at the same time showing them a new side of Hollywood film history. So it's revisiting, you know, the whole process and industry of filmmaking in the 20s and 30s. And the the story focuses on several different characters. Uh, They start kind of in different places in their career at the beginning of the film. Some are at the top already, others are at the bottom, and trying to to work their way up. Uh, But they all get caught off, particularly in Hollywood shift, from making sound movies Mm. or from making silent movies to to sound movies. Uh, In that sense, it has... Uh, a parallel with uh, Singing in the Rain as well, the Hollywood classic. Sure, and many films like The Artist as well. Yes, yes. Uh, So Brad Pitt plays one of the industry's most marketable male stars. Uh, Margot Robbie is in it, playing an unknown kind of bombshell actress who's subsequently discovered. Uh, There's a newcomer, Diego Calva, who plays a Mexican immigrant who works as a fixer and then later gets involved in filmmaking. Uh, Giovanna Adepo plays a jazz musician who plays trumpet both on and off the camera uh, and then Legion Lee plays a singer performer uh, artist whose image seems modeled after the, the legendary actress Anna Mae Wong mm. uh, so all of these characters have their fair share of kind of adventures and yeah things lots of things happen <laughs> okay so uh, we don't have two hours to describe the plot so. right right okay so mark hollywood has always enjoyed making movies about hollywood and this is the latest addition uh, to this long tradition mm-hmm. inevitably when uh, you make a film about the film industry you end up communicating some sort of a message about cinema or the act of filmmaking and what does babylon seem to be saying about hollywood uh, it seems very contradictory, and it seems like uh, Darcy mentioned La La Land, which is uh, Chazelle's film. And this seems uh, a film from five years ago, um, which he won the Oscar for, for Best Director. And this movie almost feels like he's embarrassed by that movie, or like, or at least embarrassed by how celebratory that movie seems to be, or like hmm. that it has this... And he's like, okay, I want to make this dark version of Hollywood and to kind <laughs> of counteract and that. Yeah. <laughs> and so there still is like a love of filmmaking in there. There's like, I think the best sequence in the film is like when they're making movies on mm. like the sets. I think mm. that's the best part of the movie. That's, it's a very, as you mentioned, it's three hours, so that doesn't take up that much of the time. <laughs> But that's, and I think the movie's strongest in its first half. I think its last half doesn't work very well because it's about, again, the downfall. It's a very familiar rise and fall kind of structure. Uh, but the problem is the movie is a bit cartoonish, I found, and therefore the emotions don't really land that he, the way he wants them to down the stretch. Uh, so, I mean, Chazelle's too talented a filmmaker to make a three-hour movie with nothing good in it. And right. there, is good, <laughs> there is good things in it. Uh, but it doesn't work very well as a film. I mean, the reviews haven't been very good. Uh, there are people claiming it. Like, there's always a small minority who says, no, it actually is a masterpiece. But for the most part, it's been, um, it hasn't gotten great reviews. And I think it's because it just isn't, uh, again, in trying to make this, like, again, anti La La Land, mm. this is just as over the top and just as kind of unconvincing. It's This is a fantasy, too. It's just a dark fantasy of, you know, Hollywood. Right. Almost like modeled on like a 20s silent movie about like a decadent society, like an old biblical, you know, like the Babylon title suggests. Right? Sure. There's that. So it still doesn't feel very 
like anything like reality. And yeah, he, he also, the obsession with singing in the rain comes in again at the end of the movie. <laughs> again, and again. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like it's, there's some interesting stuff in it, but it just, uh, yeah, it doesn't hold together, especially in its final half, I found. Okay, so you're not in the camp that thinks it's a, a masterpiece as mm-hmm. such. Uh, contradictory and cartoonish is how Mark described it to Darcy. You also said uh, the director's goal, it seemed to be to try and shock the audience. Uh, were you shocked at all? And if so, uh, was it a good or bad shocked? <laughs> I mean, no, I wasn't really shocked. The, I mean, I have, you know, I'm not usually shocked in movies. You know, I have kind of a calm demeanor, but I'm not. I don't generally get shocked in movies. But, uh, you know, in this one, certainly if you're the kind of person who doesn't like a lot of bodily fluid and, you know, kind of like coarse sexuality and... Um, you know, wild orgies and everything else. I mean, there's, right. there's a lot in this film that might kind of offend people. Um, I mean, personally, I didn't really have any problem with a lot of that. But but it is true that, you know, I think that Mark gets at it when he says the emotions don't really kind of hit strongly. And that goes both for uh, kind of the general emotional arc of the film, but also kind of these moments. I mean, partly because, I mean, they're kind of beautifully shot at the same time they're uh, they're meant to be shocking, and so, you know, you kind of stand back and admire them visually as well. Uh, I mean, my experience of watching the film basically was that there were moments of it that were really kind of engaging and entertaining and that pulled me in, and I was impressed by the filmmaking on a lot of occasions, and there are many moments when it kind of feels like a musical, and so these big, wild scenes where everybody's running around and then everything's kind of perfectly choreographed, it feels like a a dance sequence, uh, even if it's not one mm. in a literal sense. Uh, but on the other hand, I never really uh, could take the film seriously, mm. and yeah, and I never, and ultimately, never was very, very shocked. And so, in that sense, the film didn't work uh, in that particular goal. Right. So, I think the word cartoonish uh, comes up again for me, uh, Mark. Damien Chazelle, he is a great filmmaker, though. He's won critical acclaim and multiple Oscars for films such as Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man. So just a bump in his road in his uh, career, I guess? Yeah, it's interesting where he's going to go. Like, um, I wasn't a, the biggest fan of First Man either, and that also was a film where... But that, that's a very different film in terms of, like, its style and its tone. It's like it's... I found it actually too understated. That was my mm. big problem with that film. Uh, La La Land, I think, is interestingly, I think, his best film and the one he seems to dislike the most. Now. <laughs> so I don't know, like, he, he would probably disagree <laughs> with that assessment. And uh, so, yeah, it'll be interesting, again, uh, where he goes from here. Again, this film wasn't a success, so I don't know how easy it's going to be for him to get this kind of big budget to make a film again. Maybe he'll go back to making something a bit smaller, cool. like Wick Blash, and yeah, see where a, it goes. It's yeah. an $80 million film, the budget, and... I don't think there are going to be many more films of this type, yeah. of this budget in yeah. the future. So in that sense, a lot of people are describing it as sure. kind of like the last of its kind. Mm. Uh, I know you briefly wanted to also mention something about the soundtrack, because you're a fan of the soundtrack, at least, Darcy. Yeah, yeah, I think the soundtrack is really kind of connecting with a wider audience. And, you know, the, uh, the composer, Justin Hurwitz, has worked with the director on all of his films to date. And, of course, La La Land has a lot of famous tunes. And uh, this film, to it, you know, really heavily jazz-influenced soundtrack that I think a lot of people will enjoy, even if they don't enjoy the movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's move on to our second film now. As we said, another international release, but a much smaller independent film from Scotland. It's called After Sun. It has the same name in Korean as well. And it has been receiving many critical praises in the past few months. Mark, can you... Tell us more about this one. Yeah, this is the feature debut of a writer-director named Charlotte Wells. Um, and apparently, like a lot of debut films, fairly autobiographical, or at least mm. he's, she's dwelling into some of her own personal experiences. Uh, the story is about an 11-year-old Scottish girl, played by a newcomer, Frankie Corio, who goes on a holiday to Turkey with her father, and who uh, her father is no longer living with her, her and her mother. They're kind of separated. And the story is also framed as a kind of a something of a reminiscence. So we get like um, scenes with the adult Sophie. Uh, parts of the film are framed as kind of home video memories that she mm. takes of her camera and photos, those kind of things. 
And there's not a great deal of plot. It really is more about focusing on the two main characters and their relationship over these uh, this holiday that they right. have. And so it's kind of a melancholic kind of nostalgic look back. It has that it's really going for a mood or a feeling more mm. than it is like a, a tightly structured plot or anything like that. Um, the father is played by Paul Mescal, who's an Irish actor who gained acclaim through a TV series, Normal People, and is actually nominated for an Oscar for this award. And it seems like he's kind of a someone who's going to be a fairly big star in the next couple of years. He's in a couple of big projects coming up. And he's quite, uh, in both the lead performances, I think, kind of, you know, carry the film just because so much of it is about, sure. yeah, this relationship, right? Okay, so Darcy, it sounds like a wistful, nostalgic film, but one that has landed the lead and Oscar nomination. What do you think of it? I, mean, I really liked it. it uh, I'd heard a lot about the film before I saw it, so I went in with fairly high expectations, but I deliberately kind of avoided reading about the film because I didn't want to know in advance. And, you know, it's true that there is very little plot, and if you're looking for things to develop, then, you know, things aren't really going to develop. It's uh, it's essentially a vacation and uh, and memories. And, you know, the film, the perspective shifts back and forth. There, Most of it, you know, we're seeing it through the eyes of this 11-year-old girl, but there are moments when we seem to be looking at it from more of a distance and from more of an adult perspective. Mm. Uh, we're getting this view of her father who, uh, you know, is, is dealing with some issues, but, you know, it's not really explained in a direct way. We only get... Uh, in some ways, it's kind of filtered through her perspective as an right. eleven-year-old who wouldn't understand these kind of things. But mm. um, you know, with you know, looking back uh, many years later, uh, there are details that perhaps you know she can understand in a different way, and that's really what the director is doing. Um, you know, I when watching the film, you know, I was really kind of absorbed in it and taken by it. But it's the kind of film that, particularly after you leave the theater, I think it it hits you the hardest. And it's when you're kind of thinking back on the film later that, it, you know, it is, there's a lot of kind of sadness in the film uh, there, despite the fact that the, you know, this vacation itself is kind of a happy memory for both of them. And so it's a really interesting mix of emotions. Um, you don't get these really strong right. outbursts of emotions in the film, but it, it does accumulate in you, I think, as you're watching it. Right, so it's a film that stayed with you, Darcy. Mark, what about you? Yeah, this is my favorite film of the year. Wow, <laughs> yeah, okay. And I've seen over 100, so it's a, it's a high price. Uh, You've yeah. seen over 100 this year? Yeah, that wow. were released okay. in 2022, yeah. And, uh, yeah, this is number one for me. Um, yeah, it reminds me a lot of actually another Scottish filmmaker named Lynn, Lynn Ramsey, right. who came about in the mm. late 90s and whose work I really admire and uh, at first, I thought maybe I was being a bit lazy with that comparison because they're both <laughs> Scottish female directors. But I have listened to now for interviews where she said, especially the end sequence of this film is right from one of Ramsey's films. And, wow, okay. And there is that kind of influence. And it is, yeah, it's just this kind of impressionistic kind of, yeah, like Darcy said, like as you're watching it, you're invested, but then it kind of stays with you a lot more as you go kind of out of the theater and a lot, a lot of it's going to be how you, what personal experiences you bring to the film, mm. too. So mm -hmm. even though I'm not, I don't have the experience of being uh, a girl, I do have the experience of, like, uh, separated parents and going on vacations with my father at that age. And so I probably brought some, sure. like, um, emotions to it that maybe others wouldn't. But I think anyone can really connect to this in some way, I think, depending on, you know, your identification with the parent, the child, the both this kind of combination. I think it's a, a kind of a special film, so hopefully people will see it, even though it's in this very limited release here. Sure, yeah. wow. The uh, Your favourite film, Mark's favourite film of <laughs> the, over the last year, you mean, right? Of, rather the, than, of the 2022 year, yeah. Rather, 20, rather yeah. than It would be my best picture Oscar winner, let's put it that way. Interesting, <laughs> yeah. okay. Not that a picture like this would ever get <laughs> the, the Oscar. But, sure, sure, but, but still, yeah, it's, it, it yeah. is quite the recommendation. Yeah. Okay, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, that's our spotlight for this week. Darcy, Mark, thank you both for your time today and your thoughtful reviews, and we'll see you both again next time. Thank you. Yeah, have a great weekend.
We've reached our final segment now, next week from Seoul, where we close out the week by previewing what's happening next week. And to help us do that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us now in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Okay, so what do we have coming up next week? I believe you discussed it on the show earlier, but it is believed that North Korea will hold a military parade next Wednesday to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Korean People's Army. Satellite imagery shows that practice has been taking place since last month, but there has been no confirmation as of yet whether a parade will be held. On Wednesday, Pyongyang could show off its new weapons and missiles such as drones or an ICBM during the parade. We'll have to wait to see whether the event will take place. Yes, uh, North Korea watchers will be eager to see if any kind of new weaponry is on display. As you suggested, it is speculation for now whether a parade really is going to happen or not, but uh, the anniversary is on Wednesday and all signs suggest that a parade is in the works, so we'll have to look out for that. What's the next thing we should look out for next week? This week, the extraordinary session of the National Assembly began and from next Monday, a three-day interpolation session will be held. On the first day, the session will cover politics, foreign affairs and unification security issues, while on the second day, the parties will focus on economy. And on the final day, educational, social and cultural issues will be discussed. Yes, amid tensions between the rival parties currently and with the administration as well, the sessions could get fiery once again, so uh, we can expect some political headlines to come out of those sessions next week. Let's look at one more. What else uh, should we keep an eye out for next week? Many cities around the country will celebrate Jongwol Dae Boram, or the Great Full Moon Festival, on Sunday. For our listeners who may not know about the festival, it is held to celebrate the first full moon of the new year according to the Lunar New Year calendar. Many people pray for health and happiness on this day. In Seoul, the National Folk Museum of Korea will hold events over the weekend to celebrate the traditional holiday, including a group tug of war game, item making for children including straw, straw dolls and more. Legend has it that if you bite on nuts, such as peanuts and walnuts, the morning of the full moon, you will be gifted with good fortune for the rest of the year. Visitors to the museum can pick up some nuts for this tradition called burum at the lobby on Saturday and Sunday. Yes, well, certainly hope you pick up some nuts as well, Richard, over the weekend. Uh, we'll wrap it up there for next week from Seoul. Thank you for that roundup. Have a great weekend and we'll see you again on Monday. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another week here on Career 24. We hope our listeners have a wonderful weekend. And then join us again on Monday when we'll continue to bring you the latest news, views and reviews from Korea. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.